I am an alcoholic. My name is Eric. My sobriety date is July 12th, 1993, and I'm a member of the baby group of Alcoholics Anonymous. In Toronto, we meet Thursdays and Sundays, Thursdays for a closed discussion meeting and Sundays for an open speaker meeting. If you're ever in the north end of Toronto, I'd really like to see you there. You'll get a warm cup of coffee, a good handshake, and you'll enjoy the meeting of uh, the baby group. You know, this always sounds like a good idea. Six months ago, John asked me to come up here and share, and it always sounds like a great idea at the time. And I've really thoroughly enjoyed this conference up till right now. But I'm here, as my, my, my sponsor's sponsor said, he said, you know, Eric, the one thing we try and do in Alcoholics Anonymous when we get up at these podiums is we do the best we can and we practice the presence of God. And today I'm going to just do that. My sponsor phoned me at about 5 a.m. this morning. This is the kind of guys I hang out with in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he phoned me and he just said, I fi- he phoned at 6 o'clock this morning. He's on his way home from England right now. And you know what he said to me? He said he left a message saying, Eric, I just wanted to know that I'm that I'm thinking about you. And I know you're going to do well. And he said at about 10 a.m., if you feel a little twinge come over you, it's me saying a prayer for you. And I thank God for that. Because he said, you know what? I bet your eyes snapped open at about 5 a.m. this morning. <laughs> Some of you might know my sponsor. His name's Butch M. He's from the he's from the Tuesday Night Collier Street group up in Barrie. And, and, and Butch has been my sponsor for the last four months and five months. And, and Butch has been a, a godsend in my life. We lost his sponsor. I don't know. Some of you might know Bobby D. from the Barry from the Tuesday nights to call your street group in Barry. He died uh, June 10th this year, Founders Day in Alcoholics Anonymous. And Bobby was a great old timer, and I miss Bobby so much. But he was just a great man, and he taught me so much. I only got to know him for the last couple of years. But that man is sorely, sorely missed in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was speaking at a meeting that night. It was the Hill Group, and. Bobby died at about 9.25 that night. And at 9.20 that night when I was speaking at this group, what happened is a bat came out. In the last 10 minutes of my talk, I was dodging around like this, and this bat was coming at me from all different areas. And after that meeting was over that night, I said, you know what, because I thought about it the next day when Butch phoned me and said the old guy passed away. And I just figured it was Bobby just coming to say goodbye. And I really truly, I truly look at it to, to be that way. That's exactly what happened. It was just Bobby saying, goodbye, Eric. And I've had 45 years of sobriety. And I miss him every day. And I, and, and, and I'm just, I'm so grateful I got to know him. I'd just like to do a little housekeeping. As Tom said last night, what a conference this has been. You know, I know that these conferences are hard to put on. A lot of work goes into them. And I just think we should give the committee a great hand here for putting a wonderful, wonderful conference on. I'm just starting to get the opportunity to do these things a little bit, and uh, I know I'm, I've done a lot of these conferences myself, and I'm the chair of the Ontario Regional Conference in, in 06, and I know the work that goes into these things, and, and there's a lot of work behind the scenes and, uh, to put these deals on, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm privileged and honored to be here with you people in Winnipeg tonight, uh, this morning, and my host, Dr. Bob, that's what I like to call him. He picked me up at the airport, and we had such a fantastic time, and, and he showed me around the city, and... He's a real guy, too, and, and I know he loves this deal in Alcoholics Anonymous. You can tell the people that love this deal. They got a twinkle in their eyes, and they got a step in their step, and they love this thing. And, and you know what to see? Me and John were talking last night about watching young people come in this program. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like watching young people come around this program and, and get this deal and do this thing and loving, loving, loving it, just loving it. 
and I'd just like to thank you for, for hosting me. We're hosting the World Conference next year, and I sure hope all of you will come out to it, because it is going to be one big party. That's right. A friend of mine was telling me a couple of weeks ago that our mayor was getting interviewed, and the reporter asked him, he said, Mr. Mayor, there's going to be about 50 or 60,000 alcoholics in Toronto for four days. And he says, do you think Alcoholics Anonymous works? And the mayor shot back and he said, well, I sure hope so, because if it doesn't, <laughs> this city's in big trouble. <laughs> keep it in the words of Dr. Bob. Keep the Freudian complex to the scientific mind. AA's values of simplicity must prevail, and they do. I was down in Cleveland a few years ago, and there was a man named Jack Sullivan, who's dead now, and he had a friend named Wino Joe Leach from Tyler, Texas. And you know those 20 questions that are asked on, on the yellow pamphlet that they hand out? Well, they were written by a psychologist out of John Hopkins University. And Joe and Jack used to get a little pissed off that, an that a professional man would be calling an alcoholic an alcoholic, so they decided to write a few of their own. And one of them was, have you ever had the roof of your mouth sunburned? Have you ever been arrested while in jail? Have you ever been run over by your own car while driving? And probably the granddaddy of them all. Have you mastered the art out of puking out of? Have you mastered the art out of? Have you mastered the art out of puking out of a moving vehicle without any of it coming back at you? And it's funny as you look around the rooms of AA, people are going, "Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me, boy." Yeah, that's right. I hope there's two things I can do here tonight. And the first thing is because I came to my first meeting on July 11th, 1993, and I did not come to get sober. I came to watch a one-year medallion for a friend of my brother, Paul, and Paul's uh, been in this program 15 years. And I came to watch this one-year medallion for his friend, and my life changed that night. You see, the power of Alcoholics Anonymous, because I really believe that God works through the people in AA, and the power that was going on in that room that night was unbelievable. The, the, the baby group was about 200 members at its open meeting on Sunday nights. And the power that was in that room turned my life around. And there's two things that happened. And the one thing that happened to me that night is they talk about the hope in Alcoholics Anonymous. And for the first time in a long time, I had some hope. Because I walked in that room that night and there was people that were laughing. There was people that were, that were just having a good time in AA. And you could tell that. As I talked about before, they had a twinkle in their eye. They had a step in their step. And you could just see that they were enjoying being sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And for the first time in a long time, hope was born for me. The second thing I saw that night is I saw people that were excited about being sober. And I don't know about you, but I was never excited about being sober. And so when I saw the excitement of people that were doing this deal, it was almost hard to believe that these people weren't drinking. I'm telling you. But I'm, what, what I saw that night was hope and excitement about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And when you see that and you don't have any hope in your life, you're going to attach to that. You're going to grab onto that. And that's exactly what I did. And the meeting that night was exciting. The lady that was up there speaking, her name was Terry. Terry, and she was a counselor at the Renaissance Center. And Terry talked what I like to call, and what our book likes to call, the language of the heart. And she talked about things like fear. And she talked about things like humiliation and shame and anger and resentment and all that stuff. And she said something that made perfect sense to a guy like me. And if you're alcoholic, you'll understand this. She talked about hiding booze in her own apartment when she was the only one that lived there. And I don't know about you, but that makes sense to me. And what happens is, I don't know, what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous, we talk about two things. We talk about drinking and we talk about sense. And any time a newcomer comes into Alcoholics Anonymous and people are talking sense, it sounds like a bunch of nonsense to an alcoholic. 
And when they're talking nonsense, that makes a lot of sense to an alcoholic. That's why you'll see somebody who's six months sober in AA, and they'll be sitting at a table one night, and a person will say, why don't you try and live one day at a time? And he'll go, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Now, people have been telling him that every day for the last six months. But what happened is that night it clicked in. And I believe what we do here is we take a little bit of the unrealism out and we put the realism in. When it talks in our book about we are people that are full flight from reality, boy, oh boy, is that ever true, eh? We are full flight from reality. Nothing makes sense to us when we come into Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what we do here. We put the realism in. That's what this program's all about in the practical program of action that's outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I can remember that night, and we do chips in, in, in Toronto of nine, six, three, and one month and a desire chip. And I can remember that you got to understand my family was here and my brother Paul was up chairing the meeting. My mother was there. My brother Scott was there. And, and a friend of Scott's was there and I was right beside Scott. And they got to that nine-month chip and they said, is there anybody here with nine months of sobriety? Six months, three months, one month. Then it got to that desire chip. And they said, is there anybody here that has a desire to stop drinking? My whole family looked down at me like that. <laughs> And I said, no, I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want anything to do with Alcoholics Anonymous. But you see what happened during that meeting is about halfway through that meeting, I started to catch just a little bit of alcoholism. Just a bit. Just a bit. And when that meeting was over, I was a full-blown alcoholic with the disease of alcoholism, and I haven't had a drink since. And I went up to my brother. Thank you. And I went up to a friend of my brother's. His name was Eldon. And I said, Eldon, I think I want to do something about my drinking. And he said, well, you know, you're going to have to quit all that other stuff. And I said, I know I'm going to have to do that. And that's where my journey started. So when you talk about spiritual experiences and spiritual awakenings in Alcoholics Anonymous, that's exactly what happened to me that night. The power of Alcoholics Anonymous, how it's able to strip the egos of alcoholics and to make them feel part of something. And I hadn't been part of something for an awful long time. And that room that night turned my life around. I really, really believe that God got me sober. I don't believe that Alcoholics Anonymous got me sober. I believe that God got me sober. But I really believe what Alcoholics Anonymous has done is it's brought a purpose and an effectiveness to my sobriety where I really believe that my purpose on life today and God has given me the purpose and given all of us the purpose of sending, of carrying the message of Alcoholics Anonymous to the alcoholic who still suffers. And I love this program. I'm excited about this program. And I hope you can get excited about this program because it's the best deal in town for alcoholics of our sort. One of the greatest things in the world is that when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I had people that weren't scared of hurting my sensitive alcoholic feelings. They were willing to step on me enough because they loved me enough to take a liar and a cheat and a thief like me and to help them out and to show me a new way of life. And I always wondered why they did things like that. And the only reason I've been told many times, the only reason they do things like that is because they're so grateful for what has happened to them that they're willing to take a guy like me and work with me and show me the way of life of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thank God for guys like that. One of the greatest things they did for me is they described the kind of person I was when I wasn't drinking. And I think that's the key here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I can remember my sponsor asking me when I came in, he said, Eric, what do you think Alcoholics Anonymous is about? And I said, it's about not drinking. And he said, Eric, Alcoholics Anonymous has absolutely nothing to do with not drinking. It has everything to do how to learn how to live without drinking. And that's been the key to Alcoholics Anonymous for me. 
You see, when I'm not drinking, our big book talks in the doctor's opinion, it talks about I am restless, irritable, and discontented at my best. That's the kind of person I am when I'm not drinking. But when I have a couple drinks, something happens to me, and it's just like this. And I don't know if you people can ever relate to this, but I'm sure you can. When I take a little bit of rye or a little bit of beer and I go, boy, that feels good. And it makes me feel like I fit into society. It makes me feel like I feel part of this world. You know the promises in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, I really believe that we demand to have those promises come true in our life. And if we don't get those promises in our life, (coughs) sooner or later we will drink. And I can tell you right now, those promises came true when I was drinking. When I had one or two drinks, I found a new happiness and a new freedom. No question about it. When I had three or four drinks, I intuitively knew how to handle situations that used to baffle me. (laughs) When I had seven or eight drinks, financial insecurity just went out the door. And when I had 10 or 11 drinks, I knew, I knew that booze was doing for me what I could not do for myself. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. But that's exactly what happened to me. The only problem with that is that booze gives me the illusion that all those things are coming true in my life. And then I wake up the next morning and I feel restless, irritable, and discontented, full of fear, full of anxiety, full of shame. Who remembers the phone ringing on a Sunday morning after a Saturday night and you're picking it up and you, and you don't remember what you did last night? You don't remember what you did and you're so scared to pick up that phone, but part of you wants to know what you did, but really a part of you doesn't want to know what you did. And you pick up that phone and somebody tells you what you did. You know, that's shame. That's shame and humiliation. That's a heck of a way to live. And thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous that we don't have to live that way anymore. You know, I'm going to talk a little bit about what I was like before I even picked up a drink. And I'm going to talk a little bit about drinking. But you know what? i got to be honest with you. I don't talk a lot about drinking because most of the stuff I remember never happened. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you a little bit about my family and, and, and that, and you'll be able to go from there. And, and I want to talk about this disease because I really believe this disease is a disease of perception. And what happens to a guy like me is I see things differently. And the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous, and don't ever forget this, the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous is not a change in what I see, but it's a change in how I see things. And the progress and the progression of Alcoholics Anonymous, going through the steps in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, you get to see things differently. And that's the way my journey in Alcoholics Anonymous has been, is that I can look at something one time and I can see it completely different a year, two years later. And I usually, what happens to a guy like me is they become blessings. The worst things that I thought could ever happen in my life have turned out to be the biggest blessings in my life. You see, I really believe that nothing bad happens to a guy like me. I really believe that nothing bad happens in sobriety. It always takes me to the next level in my life, and it takes me to the next level in my sobriety. And usually what happens is a year or two or three years later, I see the blessing that God gave me. And I'll never be able to see that when I get out of it. But the bottom line is if I take a look at things and I do what I'm supposed to do in Alcoholics Anonymous, sooner or later the penny will drop and I'll say, thank you very much, God. Because that was too much for me to handle. You see, I really believe that people don't get drunk over the first half of the first step. They get drunk over the second half. Because we still think we can manage our lives. You know, how many times in Alcoholics Anonymous do we try and manage our lives? 
You know, and I've come to understand that the one thing I can't do is manage my life. You see, I manage my life into Alcoholics Anonymous. That's where I manage my life. And the bottom line is I have to sell 51% of the shares in my life to this thing called a higher power or God or whatever you want to call it. And I have to keep 49 so I can do the legwork in AA. I failed grade five. How do you fail grade five? I failed grade five, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this because it's so important. I've never met an alcoholic. I've never met an alcoholic walk into Alcoholics Anonymous who has a good self-image of self. I've never met an alcoholic that's walked into this program that loves themselves. I've met 150,000 alcoholics that are in love with themselves, but I've never met actually anybody who likes the people they are. You know, the alcoholic ego is beautiful. Eh? It can go from one end, of the, one end of the spectrum to the other one. It can sit here and tell me, you know what, Eric? You're better than everybody in this room and you don't need Alcoholics Anonymous. But then it can sit there and it can tell me, you know what, Eric? You're sicker than everybody in this room. <laughs> it can go from one extreme to the other extreme. And that is self-centered to the extreme. Egotistical. Self-centered to the extreme. They say to me that, you know what, our problem is the root of our disease is selfishness and self-centeredness. And I love that because what do they ask me to do? They ask me to come to Winnipeg and talk about who? Talk about me. I'm not much, but I'm all I have. <laughs> you know? But I failed grade five. And that's devastating to a 10 or 11 year old boy. Because what's happening is, you know what? All these other kids are going up to grade six and poor old Eric's going to stay in grade five. What are those teachers trying to tell a guy like me? They're saying, Eric, you're not quite as good as these kids. You're going to go, they're going to go there, you're going to go here. Now, is that what they're trying to get across to a 10 or 11-year-old boy? Of course not. But that's where I see it. That's my perception about how I feel about myself. So as you can see, this thing is already starting to take off. I'm not feeling good about myself, you know? I can remember I was, I come from a hockey family. I come from this family that's, uh, my dad, I'll talk about my family in a second, but we were top-level hockey players. We were all at the AAA level. And I was all, all my brothers were, were fantastic hockey players and I was, I'm the youngest of four boys. And so what would happen is I, I always was the last cut from the hockey team. You know, I'd always make it right there and then I'd get called into the office and they'd always say, Eric, you know what? We're going to have to let you go. You're just not quite good enough. And all my friends are going up here and poor old Eric's going down here. Now again, what am I thinking? I'm saying, you know what? I'm not as good as these kids. Now, is that, again, what they're trying to get across to a 10 or 11-year-old boy? Of course not. But that's the way I see it. So, again, already, I'm 10 or 11 years old, and I don't feel good about Eric. I always wanted to be someone else doing something else somewhere else. I was never quite happy with who I was. And i got to let you know about my family, because I come from a family, a loving family. I hear a lot of horror stories in Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know what? I completely agree with all of them and how tough it was. But the bottom line is I come from a family that was a loving family. My mom and dad gave us everything we needed. Not everything we wanted, but everything we needed. It was an upper upper middle class family, and it was just a good family to, to be with. You see, I have I have three other brothers, three older brothers, and two are alcoholic and two aren't. The two youngest are alcoholic and the two older ones aren't. And you see, what I hear in Alcoholics Anonymous is a lot about people blaming people for why they're alcoholic. And I've come to understand in this program that victims do not get better in Alcoholics Anonymous. They die an inch a day for years and years and years. Until I was able to take full responsibility for my sad lot in life, and I was able to accept that I have this disease of alcoholism to my innermost self, 
I could never get better. As long as I was blaming it on mommy or daddy or my brothers or, 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 or because it was raining on the way to school or because the sun came up in the east instead of the west, the bottom line is I was never going to get better in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's nothing wrong with going back and taking a look at what you have done and what perpetuated you to get from here to here. But the bottom line is that if you hang there, you die. And you die an inch a day for years and years and years. And I didn't, and I, I, we can't afford to do that. We cannot afford to do that in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I have this, bro, I have my, my dad, he comes from, the, he, he's the, he was the University of Toronto, he played hockey for the University of Toronto Blues, he was the captain of that hockey team. My mom was a, basically a great mom. She, she went to University of Toronto as well. I have a brother, Barry, who's now a Baptist, he's a Baptist preacher. And uh, Barry had a little problem with alcohol, but he found God. And now he's a, he's a teacher at Heritage College in uh, Cambridge, Ontario, which is a Bible college. He's got his master's, and he just quit drinking at 21 years old and never looked back. Now, I have a brother named Scott, and I'm sure every family's got this brother. It just makes you sick because everything he does just turns to gold. And I, he works. he's one of these guys that works the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous in his life, and he doesn't even know it. It just comes naturally to him. And I was talking to Scott on Thursday and, and, and I had a great conversation with him. I'm probably the closest to Scott. And Scott's one of these guys. And I'm going to tell you a little story about Scott. Scott left home when he was 16 years old. He went to play junior hockey in Kingston, Ontario. At the end of that three years, he signed a professional contract with the New York Islanders. And he played about 25 games in the NHL, but most of it was spent in the American League. He came home after every summer and went to school every year to get his B.A. At 26 years old, he decided he was going to retire from hockey, and he did. And he went back to school for one more year to finish his B.A. And then he went into law school and he, and he got accepted into Osgoode College, which is probably one of the best law schools in Canada. And he graduated after three years in the top 2% of his class and he went to article at one of the firms downtown, one of the best firms called Tory & Tory Downtown Toronto. <clears throat> after that, he got the opportunity to be the, the, the general manager of the Cape Breton Oilers, Edmonton Oilers farm team. And he stayed there for a couple of years and he moved the team to Hamilton. Uh, for five years. And when Kevin Lowe got hired as the general manager of the Edmonton Oilers, he hired my brother Scott as the assistant general manager. Scott makes a six-figure salary. Scott has a beautiful wife and three children. And every once in a while, I try and get him to admit of all the fun he missed out on that I was having. <laughs> and he just won't do it. He just won't do it. And then I have a brother, Paul, and Paul's probably my hero. Because Paul showed me what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. I watched Paul for four and a half years because we, we, uh, me and Paul lived together. And I watched Paul grow for four and a half years. I watched him gain the respect of my parents back. I watched him gain the respect of his employers back and my brothers back. I watched this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous work in somebody's life and I saw his life turn around 360 degrees. And I watched this beautiful deal and this miracle work in his life. And I saw that right in front of my eyes. And when they talk about this program being an attraction rather than promotion, it certainly was because I watched this thing turn in Paul. I watched it happen. And you know what? It was such a beautiful thing. I didn't see it at that time, but it's taken me a while in Alcoholics Anonymous to see what Paul did. Paul was probably the best hockey player out of all of us. He had all the tools. He could skate. He was strong. He could shoot. He could score. He could playmake. He could do all those things. But the bottom line is this disease of alcoholism caught up with him when he was 16 or 17 years old, you know, and it just took him right out of that, right out of the game, you know, but Paul was probably the best hockey player out of all of us. And then there was me. And so again, I talk about this, this, this thing about, 
victimization, and I blamed everybody in the world for my alcoholism. But the bottom line is that you got to understand, two people are and two people aren't. Two of the boys are and two of the boys aren't. We grew up in the same house together. We grew up down the hall from each other. We petted the same dog. We drank out of the same juice container. We did all the stuff together, and two people aren't, and two people are. So what I'm trying to get across is that I can't blame anybody for my alcoholism. It's just the way it is. And I know there's people here tonight. I know there's people here tonight that are saying, you know what? It's everybody's fault that I'm an alcoholic or this and that. And the bottom line is that until you get over that case and say, you know what? I'm just willing to take full responsibility for my side lot in life. You will not get better. And I know that I have to take responsibility for my alcoholism. I know that I have to do that. And that's so important to me because, as I said, is that I can't blame everybody in the world for what's happened to me. I'm going to talk about the first drink of alcohol because when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous and they said, you know what, Eric, it's the first drink that gets you drunk. You know what my reply to it was? These people are bad drinkers. (laughs) These people do not know how to drink. And it's interesting because if you take a look in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the first 52 pages in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talk about two things. They talk about what happens to Eric when he takes a drink and what happens to Eric when he doesn't take a drink. And if you take a look in the doctor's opinion, it will explain the problem. And I urge anybody that's new here in Alcoholics Anonymous to find out what their problem is because I think that's very, very important. And you take a look at the first 52 pages and they do it in many different ways. What happens to me when I take a drink of alcohol is I develop this thing called the phenomenon of craving. I am allergic to alcohol. I have an allergy. I have some kind of reaction to alcohol. They call it an allergic reaction to alcohol. And it happens to one out of every ten people that pick up a drink of alcohol. And what happens to me is when I take one, I want two. And when I take two, I want three. And as I look back on my drinking, that's exactly what happened to a guy like me. Once I took a drink of alcohol, I couldn't stop. And it was proven to me over and over and over again. The only time I ever stopped drinking... The only time I ever stopped drinking is if I had no money left or if there was no booze left. And that's just the way it was for me. And if you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous and you build up a bright outlook upon you and your family and you continue to tear that down on a senseless number of sprees and you fail to recognize without sufficient force the pain and humiliation of a day, a week, or a month ago and you continue to do this over and over and over again and you're not alcoholic, what are you? What are you? You would do well to contract this disease. This is the only disease in the world that if you catch it, you get better. If you don't catch it, you die an inch a day for years and years and years. And you know what? That meeting that night, I caught this disease of alcoholism. Alcoholics Anonymous presumes sobriety. You cannot drink and recover at the same time. It's as simple as that. You know, I see people coming around and they go back, they're in and out, they're in and out, and they're saying, you know what, I'm still trying to get spiritual while I'm drinking. It can't be done. It cannot be done. You cannot practice this program unless you're sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. I see people that try and try and get spirituality, and they can't get it because they're still drinking. Alcoholics Anonymous presumes sobriety. It presumes sobriety. We can't drink and recover at the same time. So I go back to that about me drinking in this allergic reaction, what happens to me, and they do it in many different ways in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, they do it with jaywalkers. They do it with people that put whiskey in their milk. Uh, they do it with all sorts of different ways, and they say it over and over and over again. And do you know why they do that? 
Because the people that wrote this book knew who they were talking to. They were talking to alcoholics. Do you ever notice that we read the same thing at every meeting? How it works, we read it every meeting. In Toronto, we read the traditions every meeting. If a new, if somebody came off the streets and came into these rooms for three months and they said, why do you guys read the same things all the time? Are you stupid? The reality is, as a guy like me, I need to hear these things over and over and over again. It's so important because if I forget where I came from, if I forget where I came from, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. So they talk about this allergic reaction and the phenomenon of craving. In the doctor's opinion, there is five different types of alcoholics. They go through different types of alcoholics. And the one thing that they all have in common is they develop the phenomenon of craving. Once they stop drinking, they can't. Once they start drinking, they can't stop drinking. And my other problem is once I stop drinking, all I can think about is where am I going to get my next drink? And what Dr. Silkworth calls that is the obsession of the mind. It's like a big fat idea that outweighs every other idea until I give in to it. And I don't know how many times I said to myself, I'm not going to drink today, and I'd be drunk by 12 noon. You know, I don't know how many times that stuff happened to me. And all I could think about is where am I going to get my drink? I need my drink. So you know what? I have a problem because you know what? I can't drink because I'm allergic to it, and I can't stop because I have a mind that keeps on telling me that I want it. And as I talked about in the 50, in the 52 pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, that's exactly what they talk about. I don't know about you people, but I prayed not to be an alcoholic. I did everything in the world not to be an alcoholic. I cried not to be an alcoholic. And it wasn't until I read that simple line in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and that we agnostic where it says a lack of power is our dilemma. You see folks, if you've done that and you're wondering why you're an alcoholic, the bottom line is it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's just the way it is. And as I said before, until I accept that, I'm going to struggle in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know? And so it's so important for us to find out what our problem is and what the solution here is in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was a member of the Baby Country Club, and a Baby Country Club is an alcoholic's paradise because you're private members of this country club, and I'll tell you what happens at private clubs is you write your name and number down and they give you whatever you want. And at the end of the month, daddy gets the bill. Beautiful thing. And so we had two practicing alcoholics at this time, so me and Paul would go over to that club or I'd go over. And I want you to think about this. I'm 16 years old. Does this maybe tell you a little bit about early stages of alcoholism? I was 16 years old and the club was around the corner from my house. And I would go down to the club and I would sit there and watch Monday night football and drink liquor by myself. And then I'd go into the card room and I'd play cards and do whatever I had to do. And then I'd come back and then I'd walk home. And I did this a lot. And the only problem with that is on the 6th or 7th of every month, your dad would get the bill. And my parents were separated at this time. And my dad would phone me on the 6th or 7th of every month and he'd say, Eric, you can't do this to me anymore. You cannot do this to me anymore. This is costing me so much money. You can't do it to me anymore. And you know what I'd say to my dad? I'd say, Dad, I promise I'll never do this again. And you want to know what, folks? I meant it. I didn't want to do that kind of stuff to my dad. My dad had given us nothing but the best. He gave us the love. He gave us the financial support. As I said before, he didn't give us everything we wanted, but we got everything we needed. We didn't go starving for nothing. And I didn't want to do that kind of stuff to my dad. But I want to tell you about the the, the disease of alcoholism. And when they talk in the big book about this thing is powerful. It's cunning, baffling, powerful. 
about two or three months after I said that to my dad. I don't know if you people have ever done this. But I would say something like this. I wonder what he really meant by that. He didn't mean stop going to the club forever. He just meant give it a little break. And I would rationalize it and I'd justify it just to the way I wanted to see it. I went to the Baby Country Club two months later and I went for one drink. And I left the Baby Country Club about eight hours later. I made an ass of myself, I made an ass of my family, and I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do that. But that's what one drink of alcohol does to a guy like me. It just starts everything off. It just starts the whole process off, you know? What's the difference between an alcoholic and a social drinker and a heavy drinker? The big book talks about that. You know, have you ever seen social drinkers? I don't particularly like social drinkers. You know, have you ever seen these social drinkers? They'll be sitting at a table. They'll have two or three drinks or they'll, they'll, the waiter will say, come up and they'll give them a drink. They'll put drinks around the table. And you know what they'll start doing? They'll keep talking. Can you imagine that? They'll keep talking. And about two or three drinks, the waiter will come back and they'll say, would you like any more? And you know what they'll say? They'll say, no, thank you. I'm starting to feel it. And that doesn't make any sense to a guy like me because I'm just starting to feel it. That's where I want to go because it's taken away the fear. And I've come to understand what happens to a social drinker. You see, social drinkers have good self-image as a self. And social drinkers like the way they feel. And social drinkers don't feel ill at ease all the time. And their environment does not threaten them constantly. And so when they start to have about two or three drinks, something's starting to happen to these people and they're starting to feel a change. And they don't want to change. So they say, no, thank you, I've had enough. And every once in a while, they might drink too much but not very often, and they stop drinking because they're quite happy with who they are. The alcoholic, on the other hand, when they have one or two drinks, as I talked about before, something happens to us where the magic just starts to begin. And I've come to understand that the alcoholic is ill at ease constantly, does not like who they are, and I don't know about you, but my environment threatens me on a regular, regular basis. And when I have two or three drinks of alcohol, as our speaker talked Tom last night, I start to get rocketed into this fourth dimension. I start to go to a place where I want to be because I don't like who I am and I don't like the environment that I'm in. And what happens to a guy like me is because I drink a little alcohol, because I take some alcohol in my system, it makes living with me and it makes my environment that I live in tolerable to live in. That's what it does for a guy like me. That's the difference between a social drinker and an alcoholic, you know? See, people used to say to me, Eric, you drink too much. And do you know what I'll say to them? No way. I never drink too much. And if you're an alcoholic, you could never drink too much in the world. My problem is, is I can't drink enough. You see, when they talk about us being powerless over alcohol, I'm not powerless over alcohol because I can't drink. I'm powerless over alcohol more so because I can't make it work anymore. I cannot make it work anymore. I never set out once to say, you know what, Eric, I'm going to go get so disgustingly drunk that I'm going to puke on the cop car. I'm going to, I'm going to do something to the bar. I'm going to do all this. I never set out once to do that. It was always, you know what? I'm just going to go out. I'm going to have a couple drinks and that's going to be the end of it. And I never set out to get completely drunk. The only problem with alcoholics, and as I told you before, the only problem is that we have a couple drinks and we start to feel good. And then as time goes on, we need more and more and more. You see, there are three stages to alcoholism, in my, in my opinion. The first stage 
is, is what I call fun plus fun. You know, we're starting to really enjoy it and it's a lot of fun for a long time. And I don't know about you people, but I enjoyed alcohol for a long time. It was a social lubricant. It was great. And then the second stage of alcoholism is what they call fun plus problems. But you see, I'm still having fun. And as long as an alcoholic's having fun, they're never going to quit drinking. As a matter of fact, the alcoholic just needs to think that they're going to have a little fun and they'll never quit drinking. Do you understand what I'm saying? And then the, sta- the third stage of alcoholism is what they call problems plus problems plus problems. You see, the good old days are gone. And we'll never be able to recapture that feeling that we had years and years ago. You see, I know that I was in the early stages of alcoholism when I was 16 years old. Somebody could have come up to me and say, Eric, you're in the early stages of alcoholism. You better do something about your drinking. And you know what I would have said to them? I would have said, but I'm having fun. I'm having fun. And as long as we're having fun, you know what? We're never going to come to Alcoholics Anonymous or we're never going to quit drinking. It has to be desperation. We have to be desperate. And until we're desperate, we're not going to do anything about our drinking because drinking made us, drinking was our solution for so long. It made us feel like we were part of society. It made me feel like I fit into this world. And you take that away from me, I'm going to feel like a mess. You see, it's interesting. Most alcoholics don't commit suicide when they're drinking. They commit suicide when they're sober. Because they have nothing to replace the drinking with. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. Alcoholics Anonymous replaces drinking. Alcoholics Anonymous works exactly the same way as drinking, except it just takes a little bit longer. It just takes a tad longer. <clears throat> and I gotta talk again about the first drink. When I was at a, I was coaching AAA hockey, I was coaching it for 16 years. And I was 26 years old. And I took over an Ontario Championship hockey team. And I was 10 and 1. My team was 10 and 1 in November. And they said, uh, I got called into the president's office and he said to me, he said, Eric, we, we, there's a lot of people complaining about your drinking. There's something you gotta do about it. And he wanted to fire me right on the spot. But I'm good at, I'm a good con artist and I'm good at talking. And for some reason he, I talked my way into staying there. But he said, there's two rules you must, you must do. And I said, what are they, Dave? He said, the first thing is you seek professional help. Huh. No problem, Dave. I'll seek professional help. No big deal at all. I had no intention of seeking any professional help. The second thing he said, and this is the kicker, he said, you can't drink in Double Rink Arena's bar. Folks, he's not even asking me to quit drinking. He's just saying, stay out of one bar in Toronto. That's all he's saying to me. One bar. Stay out of one. Toronto's a big place. One bar. About two weeks later, and I don't know if you people have ever done this, but I'd say something like this. I wonder what he really meant by that. <laughs> I was in Double Rink Arena for a game at 12 o'clock on a, on a Saturday afternoon. At 1.30, I was in Double Rink Arena's bar to have one drink. I left Double Rink Arena's bar at 8 o'clock that night, so drunk, so disgustingly drunk, I made an ass of myself, and I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do that. You see, there's two things that made Eric feel like a person. The first thing, and always the first thing, was alcohol. It made me feel bulletproof. And the second thing that was so important to me is I had this little hockey card that said Eric House and Hockey Coach, and that made me feel like a million dollars. And our book talks about that. It talks about when everything's on the line, 
when we put everything on the line and we still pick up a drink of alcohol, even though we know exactly what it's going to do to us, we still pick up a drink of alcohol. You see, the consequences were never too heavy for what alcohol gave me. You know, it talks about in that book things that are in our favor and we pick up a drink of alcohol. That's insane. When they talk about the insanity of this disease, that's exactly what they're talking about. They're not talking about the 10th floor of a, of a hospital where people are there that are going to need some treatment for the rest of their lives. And they're going to need some kind of chemical to make their brain balance properly. That's not the insanity we talk about here in Alcoholics Anonymous. The insanity we talk about here in AA is as being as perfectly sober as you and me are right now and picking up a drink of alcohol, even though the evidence is overwhelming what happens to people like us when we pick up a drink. And we pick it up. That's what Bill Wilson's definition of insanity is. Being as sober as a chief and still picking up a drink of alcohol, even though the consequences, we know what happens to them. And we still do it. And we still do it, you know. My last month of drinking was really impressive. I was out of a job. I had some money in the bank, and this was my routine. I would go to the I'd go to the liquor store at about 10 o'clock in the morning. For you people that don't know, the liquor store is open at about 10 a.m. Okay, and I'd go to the liquor store at 10 a.m. I'd grab a 40-ounce or a rye. I'd usually go to the bar for some lunch, a couple crackers and a few beers. And then I'd go home, and I'd drink rye all night. I'd pass out at about 2 in the morning. Or one in the morning, I'd get up at about six o'clock in the morning, I'd do my aerobics over the toilet, I'm sure you've all done them. And then I'd do the same thing, then I'd pass out, have a couple more drinks, pass out, and I did this over and over and over again until July 11th, 1993. That weekend, I had bought a case of beer, and I was so physically, physically sick that I couldn't even drink that beer. Physically sick that even though I was drinking it, I couldn't get drunk. It wasn't working anymore. And that's what I talked about being powerless over alcohol when it just doesn't work anymore. It wasn't stopping the noise going on in my brain anymore. It just wasn't happening. The most devastating six inches of space is the space between our ears. Because the stuff that goes on there is unbelievable. It never stops. My brain's going 40 different ways looking for a stop sign. And you know, it just doesn't stop. And it wasn't stopping any of it. The liquor wasn't working anymore. And I was so physically sick. And I really believe that night, when they talk about that weekend, when they talk about this disease being a threefold disease, when they talk about it being physical, mental, and spiritual, I believe that night, that weekend, I was physically bankrupt, I was mentally bankrupt, and I was spiritually bankrupt. And that whole day on the Sunday afternoon, all I, I, my brother Paul really wanted me to come to this meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was debating it all day because it was the hottest day that had ever come across Toronto. It was never been hotter in Toronto. It had nothing to do with me withdrawing from alcohol. <laughs> but it was so hot. And I can remember going into the Bayview, I finally decided. You see, I was saying to somebody this weekend, the worst decision I thought I could have ever made was come to Alcoholics Anonymous. Turns out to be the best decision I ever made. Isn't that weird? You know? The worst thing that I could have thought I could have done was come to AA. You see, we had one alcoholic in the family. We don't need any more. That was my thinking. You see, when my brother was 27 years, 26 years old, and he came into this program, I was 22 and a half years old. And you know what my thinking was back then? I have another three and a half years of good drinking before I have to turn myself into you people. That's the way I thought. So I knew that I was powerless over alcohol long before I got here. 
Would I use those words powerless? Of course not. But I knew there was something really weird about my drinking. And as I talked about before, I came in on the second half of step one because I couldn't manage my life anymore. I couldn't manage it, you know. And I went to the baby group that night and I saw the excitement and I saw the hope and I saw all that stuff. And my brother Paul, after the next day, he said, I don't want you to pick a sponsor. I don't want you to pick a home group. I'm going to take you around to meetings. And for the first 30 days, we're going to go to meetings every day. And that's exactly what my brother Paul did. And I'm so grateful for what he did for me, Paul. Because again, he did with this program. Because this program, it's so hard. And you heard Tom talk about it last night and Mary talk about it. It's so hard to help loved ones. It's so hard. Because our expectations start to get up here. And when our expectations start to get up here, what happens to people like us, when they're not met, we get resentful. It's so hard to help loved ones, and I'm sure it wasn't easy for Paul because Paul watched me before he came into this program. And Paul says the greatest moment in his life was to watch me come through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's the greatest deal. My brother Paul watched it. It's like loving the alcoholic for who they are, but hating them for what they're doing. Hating the disease of alcoholism. Loving the alcoholic, but hating the disease of alcoholism. And I ended up getting this sponsor. His name was Jerry C. I thought he was an Italian gangster. He turned out just to be Italian. <laughs> and Jerry was the greatest thing that ever happened to a guy like me because he was in Alcoholics Anonymous. Jerry was about four years sober and Jerry was busy in AA. He was a guy that was here. He was there. He was everywhere. It's interesting. When we come into Alcoholics Anonymous, we look for people that we're like. Why do we want to look for people that we're like? We're trying to change who we are. And I take a look at a guy like Robert, and I take a look at a guy like Mike and Scott and the other guys here. When they came into Alcoholics Anonymous, they looked for people who they wanted to be like. They looked for those people like John. They look for the people that they want to be like. Get in the back pockets of these old timers because they're the ones that are going to teach you. You know, they, they know the black lines in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That tells you the program. But the white lines in between are the ones that the old timers are going to tell you how to do this deal. You know, they read the white lines in between the black lines and they're the ones that are going to show you this beautiful way of life. Why do we hang around people that we want to, that, that are like us? Again, we're trying to change who we are. If you're new here, get in the back pockets and hang on to these old guys because I'm telling you, they're not going to be here forever and we need them. My sponsor said to me, he said, make sure you say hi to a guy named Tom G here. He said, make sure you say hi to him because he's a good old timer. And I had the opportunity to come up here and meet Tom the other day and I said, Butch just wanted me to say hi to you. And Tom said, you make sure you say hi to Butch for me. Because those are the guys that know this deal and they're, gonna, they're not going to be around forever. So it's important for us to carry this deal on. You see, there's so much stuff coming into Alcoholics Anonymous today. There's anger management. There's, you know, therapy going on. <clears throat> Every self-help book in the world is out there and it's infiltrating AA, you know. And all I know, I was at a meeting a couple weeks ago and there was a lady, there was a girl that was one month sober and some lady came up to her after the meeting and said, why don't you go grab this self-help book? And I asked her after the meeting, I said to this girl, I said, have you read a lot of self-help books? And she says, yeah, why? Can you tell? <laughs> and I said, have they done you a lot of good? And she says, no, as a matter of fact, they haven't. 
I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because the big book is the best self-help book in the world. It it has helped more people than any other self-help book in the world. The big book of alcoholics, we shouldn't be telling newcomers to read this and to read that and to read that. We should be getting into the 12 and 12 and the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's where this program is. It's not about anger management because I don't know anything about that. It's not about, you know, feelings and all sorts because I don't know anything about that. It's not about self-help books. Thank God for the old timers who said, you know what, Eric? I'm going to pass on the simple program of Alcoholics Anonymous that was passed on to me. Thank God for that. Thank God for that. And that's what I want. I want to be able to pass on this simple program that was passed on to me. And I want that to carry on. And that's the way I sponsor people today. I can remember being at my first business meeting and Jerry was, Jerry said, I want you to go in there and shut up. I want you to take the cotton out of your mouth and put it in your ears. God, these guys talked rough to you. You know, they weren't easy on you. And so that's what I did. And I went into that first business meeting and the lady was up there chairing and she said, we need people to set up the Bayview group Sunday and Thursday nights. And Jerry put up his hand. And I said, boy, if I picked a good sponsor, this guy's a fantastic guy. He said, Eric will set up Thursdays and Sundays. He'll set up Thursdays, Sundays. Don't worry about it. I'm going like this. I'm going, geez, I'm new in this program. Thank God for guys like Jerry. And Jerry wasn't one of these guys that said, you know what? We're going to wait three years before we do the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous till you feel better. You know, I'll tell you what. You come into Alcoholics Anonymous and you just sit in the back chair, you will feel better. You'll feel resentment. You'll feel shame. You'll feel fear. You'll feel anxiety. You'll feel that crap a whole lot better if you just sit there and do nothing in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's like sitting in the back chair. It's like sitting in a chicken coop for a thousand hours. See if you become a chicken. Same thing in Alcoholics Anonymous. Come sit in the chair. See if you get good contented sobriety. I've never met anybody that goes to work once a week and gets a paycheck. I've never met anybody go to school once a week and come out with full credits. And I've never met anybody come to Alcoholics Anonymous once a week and get good contented sobriety. It just doesn't happen. And it never will happen. And you know what? Jerry got me involved in the steps and by I was six months sober and I was doing the steps and he got me through it and we did my step four and five and we went on. Now you gotta understand when you're in, in sobriety going through the steps for the first time, you think you've done this program and everything's great and it's gonna be hockey dory from there on in. The bottom line is I did the best I could at that time. And I thank God for doing that best I could at that time. And Jerry was a guy we went to roundups. We went all over the place together. It was phenomenal. I was in AA. You know? I was in AA. And at about three and a half years sobriety, and I'm sure, again, I'm sure it's never happened to anybody here, but I fell in love at the coffee pot. Mm-hmm. Fell in love at the coffee pot. She was a beautiful girl. And we went out. We were members of the same home group. That's smart right there, eh? You'd think you learned something after three and a half years. And that ended about four and a, a year later, and I was devastated. I was completely, completely devastated. And I had this black spot in my stomach. You know the football? You know the emptiness? And I had that spot at four and a half years of sobriety. And I really realized why I drank in the first place. Because I didn't want to feel stuff like that. And I went through it. 
And our book talks about it, and the speakers were talking about it this weekend. When all else fails, what do we do? We go work with another alcoholic. And I was out there. I was out there. And I finally got a hold of this one guy, and I didn't let him go for six months. He thought I was great, and he was busy saving my life. He was busy saving my life. And we went all over the place together. And another thing at that time, I, I, my sponsor Jerry was going through some personal problems, so I had to get another sponsor. And I picked this guy from my group. His name's Bill Clearwater. He doesn't mind me breaking his anonymity. He does. And probably the greatest thing in the world happened to me. He took me through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, Joe and Charlie style, and it took about eight, to, eight months to a year to go through it, and my life changed. You see, that book came alive for me. I realized the program that I didn't have. And I realized what this program was really asking me. You see, I think for a long time there, after about two years of sobriety, I was coming to meetings early, late, and then leaving early and doing all this. I really wasn't doing the deal in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've come to understand that the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is not a book that's meant to be studied. It's a book of instructions and directions that have to be followed for us to have what we call, or Bill Wilson calls, a spiritual experience or a spiritual awakening. You see, I can study that book till I'm blue in the face. I can know every dictionary meaning in that book, every word, every dictionary meaning, but if I'm not willing to apply that in my life, it's never going to work for me. You hear people get up here and quote the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. You hear, hear, hear me talk about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's very easy to be up here pontificating from the podium about Alcoholics Anonymous, but you know what? What am I doing? What am I doing in AA? Action, action, action. You see, I really believe that there's a difference between relief and freedom. When you come into Alcoholics Anonymous, you need relief because you haven't done, you haven't had relief in a long time. And you need some relief. But the only difference between freedom and relief is relief is temporary. And if you want the freedom that we talk about here in Alcoholics Anonymous, you have to do the program. You have to be involved in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you want that freedom, do that because you'll get it. And those promises will come true in your life. And Bill took me through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous one-on-one. And we went through that thing, and my life has never been the same since. You see, I learned so much. I realized that AA is not a fire station. You can't come here and put out your fires. This is a way of life. This is a way of life and a beautiful way of life that has to be continued on and on and on. You see, what happens to a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous is they come here and they get something out of Alcoholics Anonymous, and then they forget about where they came from. And their priority was Alcoholics Anonymous for a couple years, but what happens is Alcoholics Anonymous slips to the priority list down here, and it's not important. They start to get the family back. They start to get their money back. They start to get the business back and everything back, and AA becomes a low priority. You know, I, I, I hope that never happens to a guy like me. I don't want this to become a low priority for me. I want to keep it way up here because, you know what, it's given me so much here. And I realized another thing. My sponsor said, you know what, Somewhere between three and ten years, we find out the real asses we are. <laughs> he says, you've worked this program. He says, you've done the steps, you've done the service, you've done everything like that. But I ask, I ask you, Eric, I ask you, are you really practicing these principles in all your affairs? It's easy to sit here in the rooms of AA and be spiritual giants. You know, how am I treating my family at home? 
How am I work at my work environment? What kind of person am I at my work environment? How do I treat the guy in the Becker store? How do I treat the delivery guy at the pizza place? I really realize that I must practice these principles in all my affairs. You see, there's a principle at each step. And I have to practice these things on a regular basis. I have to do it. Are we perfect? Of course not. But as long as we're trying, we have to really, really try to practice these principles in all our affairs. You know? Michael was talking about it the other day about the drivers out there. You know? Road rage. You know, do I let the old lady in when she's doing Am I practicing the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous in all my affairs? You see, it talks about in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that we have a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And if you listen to people say that, what they usually say is they leave out the most important word in that whole, in that whole sentence. You hear people say we have a daily reprieve contingent on our spiritual condition. No, we don't. We have a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. What am I doing to maintain my sobriety? You know? Am I coming here every once in a while? You know? Am I putting the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, way way up here? As a, uh, is that my number one thing? Because I've come to understand that the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous is a beautiful thing. But the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous does not change us. It supports us. It doesn't change us. And what happens to people like me is it took me four and a half years to realize that my sponsor is an alcoholic just like I am. Four and a half years to realize that. Isn't that amazing? See, we put people up here sometimes on pedestals. Alcoholics on pedestals. And the bottom line is that, you know what, sooner or later they'll let us down. And the fellowship will let us down. And if we don't have the program of AA there, if we haven't, if we don't have that there, we're in trouble. You know, I'm going to talk a little bit about two or three more things and I'm going to be out of here. And I'm going to talk about our circle and triangle because this is how I measure myself in Alcoholics Anonymous now. Our circle and triangle talks about unity, recovery, and service. And I have to ask myself, and again, this is my measuring stick, and if any of these things fall, the whole thing falls for a guy like me, and this is how I look at myself every day. I have to ask myself, am I involved in the unity part of the program? What is the unity part of the program? The unity part of the program is the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Am I involved? Am I talking to other alcoholics on a regular basis? Am I out there doing this deal? Am I, am I socializing with alcoholics on a regular basis? And if I can check that off, I'm in pretty good shape. The other part it talks about is the recovery part of the program. What is the recovery part of the program? It's the 12 steps in the practical program of action that's outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Am I involved in the practical program of action? Have I done the steps? Have I done the traditions? Am I working the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous in my life? Am I doing those things on a regular basis? Because I really believe that the unity part of the program and the recovery part of the program is one. You can't have one without the other. You need them both. And I have to ask myself, am I involved in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous? Am I continuing to do these steps over and over again? I'm not one of these guys that can do 1 through 9 and live 10 and 11 and 12 the rest of my life. I have to constantly go through the steps over and over and over again. And when I submit myself to that process, wonderful things happen continuously. But i got to submit myself to that process on a regular basis. And then it talks about the service part of the program. What is the service part of the program? The service part of the program, what am I doing to maintain my sobriety? What am I doing? 
Do I do the phones at 234 Eglinton, which is the Toronto Intergroup? Yes, I do. Do I set up my baby group when I'm asked to set it up? Yes, I do. Do I come to Winnipeg when I'm asked to do that? Yes, I do. Do I go speak at other groups around? Yes, I do. Do I work on different committees? Yes, I do. Am I the GSR of my group? Yes, I am. Am I doing these things on a regular basis? Yes, I am. And probably the most important thing in the world. I sponsor guys. I sponsor about six or seven guys. And I take them through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous the exact same way I was going to take them. I meet with them once every two weeks, each one of them. And we go through that big book the exact same way that I went through it. And I watch these guys light up. I watch them get this, get the understanding of this process. And I watch, because I have people that are coming up to me that are three or four years sober that have never been through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we go through it, and I watch their lives change. And John and me were talking about that the other day. There's nothing in the world like watching people come into Alcoholics Anonymous that are broken and desperate. And you watch them a year later, getting up here, getting a one-year medallion, and they're wondering when they're going to have a spiritual experience. <laughs> you know? And you watch them laughing and scratching and having just a fantastic time. That's Alcoholics Anonymous. Let's not ever forget that this whole program is one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic, sharing their experience, strength, and hope with each other. You know? That's what the service part of the program. You see, I've won a lot of championships in hockey, in tennis, in baseball. But there's no feeling in the world that I get more gratifying than watching somebody turn their life around. There's nothing like it. And I chase that feeling. I chase that feeling on a regular basis because I love the way it makes me feel. And I love to see people get better in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know what? Alcoholics Anonymous is guaranteed. It's a guaranteed success here in Alcoholics Anonymous. AA does not fail. But I'll tell you what happens to a lot of people in the alcoholic theme song. And I don't know if you people have ever heard about this in Winnipeg, but we hear a lot of this in Toronto. The theme song is, my case is different. I don't have to do these things that you people do. And I watch people go. You see, there's a lot of people that are sitting in cancer wards right now and AIDS wards and that are dying. And if you went up to them and you said, you know what, I've got a book that's going to save your life. Do you know what those people would do? One day on this earth. Do you know what those people did? They'd jump out of the bed and do whatever they have to do. Do you know what alcoholics are saying? I'll think about it. And this thing's killing people as much as any other disease in the world. It never gets put down to alcoholism, but you want to know what? It's killing people like crazy. It's either, you know, they, they die in a car accident or their heart failure and all that, but alcoholism is killing people, and I want to be ready for them. So when I talk about the circle and triangle, am I in the recovery part of the program, the unity part of the program, the service part of the program? If I can check those three things off, that means I'm in the circle. And when I'm in the circle, they call that the circle of love, and Alcoholics Anonymous is working in my life. But when one of those things collapses, I just have to look. When I'm not feeling well, I just have to look, and I see that one side's collapsed, and what happens is the whole side's collapsed. I'm going to talk about the power of God, then I'm getting out of here, I promise you. The power of God in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, because I really believe that God speaks through people. You know, I really, really believe that. Part of our problem is we don't listen most of the time. But the bottom line is God speaks through people, and I'm going to show a couple of, of examples about how God works in my life. 
I was sitting at 234 Eglinton doing the phones on a Saturday night one night. And a call came in at about 6.30 in the after, uh, 6.30 at night. And there was a guy on the phone and he said, you gotta help me out. You see, I've got a guy in Clifford, Ontario. And you gotta understand, all the meetings that I go to in Toronto, I tell this story. And Clifford, Ontario is a little small farming town in, 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 in north, northwestern Ontario. And it's just a little town. And I always ask people, do you know where Clifford, Ontario is? And nobody knows where Clifford, Ontario is. You blink and you go buy it. And this guy says, uh, I've got a sponsee in, in Clifford, Ontario. He's in real bad shape. And he needs somebody to talk to. Can you help me out? And I said, I can do better than that. I said, I spoke at a one-year medallion in Clifford, Ontario about two weeks ago. And I was able to phone Greg, who I spoke for. And this guy lived two doors down from Greg. And you see, in Toronto, on a weekly basis, we have about 200 people that go in and do that phone shift. What are the chances of me being there at 6.30 at night, on a Saturday night, doing my deal in my sobriety station in Alcoholics Anonymous? God doesn't work that way. Come on, no way. God wouldn't have me in the right place at the right time doing my deal in Alcoholics Anonymous. No way. This is another coincidence. No way that can happen to a guy like me. I'm here to tell you, that's exactly the way God works. That's exactly the way God works. Because I'm doing my deal in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was working, I was in a courier business a few years ago and there was a girl that was sitting at an unemployment place doing the, the, I had a delivery there and she was sitting there and she was from my group and she was about three months sober and she's sitting at the computer and she's having a real tough day. You know what it's like when you're three months sober, the brain's all over the place, you know, emotions are, you know, you drop a pin and you cry, you know, just the emotions are all over the place and all that and, and she's sitting there and she says, she's saying a prayer. Well, she's sitting by the computer. She says, God, please send me an angel because I'm going to go drink across the street unless you send me an angel. And there I was. <laughs> and there I was. Me and her went outside. We had a cigarette together. We had a little meeting. Guess what, folks? That girl's two and a half years sober and alcoholic anonymous. That's not the way God works. There's no way God works that way. He wouldn't have me at the right place at the right time doing my deal in Alcoholics Anonymous. No way. That's not the way God works. Coincidence. That's exactly the way God works. He speaks through you and me. Because He loves what we're doing here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think it was Tom last night talking about we're all God's children. You know? We are all God's children. You know? I don't believe that I've been chosen or, or anybody's been chosen here. I believe we, we're all God's kids. What's the difference between a guy like me and the person that's sitting out on Winnipeg streets right now or a person that's sitting in their million dollar mansion killing their family? I really believe that I've come to understand that I'm one of God's kids. And I really believe that once you start acting like one of God's kids, you start to get treated like one of God's kids. I really believe that, you know? And you see a lot of people that come into AA and they leave AA and they do all this. I really believe that we all have that moment of clarity. You know, the moment of clarity where it rings in saying, you know what, maybe this deal can work for me, that moment of clarity. What's the difference of the people that stay and the people that go? I really believe that the people that stay here at Alcoholics Anonymous keep that moment alive. They keep it going. They keep on doing this deal. 
I'd love to see people having fun in Alcoholics Anonymous. Our book tells us we insist on enjoying life. We insist on it. We're not a glum lot. This thing is the best deal in the world. And I hope, I hope that I've maybe been able to help somebody here today. If not, you guys have helped me so much. I love Alcoholics Anonymous, and I love coming to Winnipeg, and I really, really understand that Alcoholics Anonymous is alive and well in Winnipeg. Alive and well. There's a lot of great people here that are doing this deal, and I love being, I love seeing that in AA. I love seeing people that are as enthusiastic as I am. Because I never want this thing to become a low priority. Because we got a lot of work to do. The treatment centers are sending them in, and I'm not anti-treatment or I'm not anti-anything. But the bottom line is that if those people want to stay sober, they got to come here. And I want us to be ready. And I want us to be ready with the simple program of Alcoholics Anonymous that was brought to me. I want that program to be here for people that are coming in these doors that can enjoy the same life like we have. I always end my talks with a little story. It's about an old man walking down a cold and dark road. In the middle of the road, he sees a snake. And the snake says to the old man, please, sir, pick me up and nurse me back to health. I'm dying. And the old man says, I can't do that. He says, you're a poisonous reptile, and surely if I was to pick you up and nurse you back to health, you'd bite me. And the snake said, not if you save my life. So the old man picked up the snake and put him on the inside of his jacket. And when the snake got to feel a little bit better, he bit the old man. And the old man threw the snake back down to the ground, and he looked at the snake and said, I thought you said you wouldn't bite me if I saved your life. And the snake looked at him with a snickering grin and said, you knew what I was when you picked me up. My friends, if you're in the confines of a bar room, cocktail lounge, or even your own living room, and you decide to take the plug out of the jug or the cork out of the bottle, rationalize it those that will listen. Justify it to yourself. If you've been here, and if you know me, and if you've met us, you knew what it was when you picked it up. Thank you so much for having me in Winnipeg.